Welcome to Resilience Unraveled, your regular guide sharing tools and expertise to build a life full of positivity and possibility. Here's your host, Russell Thackeray. So today I'm delighted to be talking to Tony Crabb. Tony's an international consultant who's written a really useful book. A book's called Busy, which is how to thrive in a world of too much. And certainly from my own perspective, and I think for many people out there, we've got a clear sense of what we're going to do and where we want to go, but things derail us, things get in the way. And I'm hoping Tony's got some really interesting insights on that today. So, hi, Tony. Hi, Russell. How are you doing? I'm great, thanks. How's the weather, wherever you are in the world? Well, I'm in Spain. I live, I live in Spain, and it's beautiful. Uh, early 20s. <sighs> You see, I'm sighing now because, as you know, I live in Spain as well from time to time. So I'm, I'm being very um, nostalgic or whimsical about th- looking forward to my next break. So, uh, well, it's even, it's even warmer where you live, I suspect, because you're further south than me, aren't you? It is, it is. But I'm, I'm polishing up on my Spanish accent and my olas and olés and such like and, um, and my Spanish lessons. So I'm looking forward to getting out there. Well, thanks so much for, for joining me today. Tony, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm a business psychologist. I work with with multinationals around the world, Microsoft, Disney, Salesforce, and I've written this book, as you said, the how to how to or busy how to thrive in a world of too much, which really stemmed from an interest in in this pattern of behaviour that we seem to be getting into that I call busyness, and really the the importance of doing something about that. So, what do you mean by busy? What what, what do you mean by that? Well, I. I started the book. One of the things that triggered me to write the book in the first place is I was on a tube in in London, and within a few minutes, I heard the seven different people use the word busy. It's become this kind of brand. We don't just when we meet people, we don't just say how are, you know when we, someone says how are you when we respond busy. We don't just say busy as a matter of fact. We sell it to them, don't we? We we try and convince them quite how busy we are, um, and that got that got me curious. So the I think busy is many things, but I think one of the things it is is this state of constant alertness, constant activity, racing, rushing, cramming, juggling that spans so much of our life. And I actually think the opposite of busyness isn't necessarily relaxation on a beach. I wasn't writing this as a work-life balance book. I think the opposite of busyness is despite this kind of information tsunami, demand tsunami that we face, is the ability to bring sustained, focused attention onto the people or the problems that matter most to you. Right, that's really interesting. So so I, I, I recognise what you say when you talk about business. It's almost become a ritualised thing. How are you today? I'm really busy. And then there's a sort of, how can I, just, I can't describe, an escalation process when people then compare their levels of busyness. But, oh, yeah, I'm so busy. Yes, I know. I've never been busier. And, and it is in the psyche, isn't it? It's quite interesting. I wonder, do you see the same thing in Spain? You know, it's, it's curious. The books now come out in oh, goodness, how many hundred countries around the world? I mean, it's and it's in twelve languages. One one of the countries that I really would like it out is in Spain, and it's not come out here. And I do think that says something about the psyche. The I think it's expressed differently here. Mm. Um, what I experience in in Spain is less of the shall we say the Anglo-Saxon obsession with more and more and more work. Yeah. Um, and the the thing that I notice 
in Northern Europe and Northern America a little bit more around, um, how can I say this, disconnection from values. Um, So putting work sometimes ahead of time with family, ahead of other things that might matter to them. But, but with good intentions, done for, because it's good for them, if you like. That doesn't happen so much in Spain. The family stuff seems to happen first more frequently. But I think there are obsessions about other things. WhatsApp's just a crazy nightmare here. The collectivist culture kind of go for these, these kind of endless WhatsApp groups with um, reckless abandon. So it's expressed differently, but I still see the challenge. And it's interesting, one of our other podcast guests really has talked about the disconnect between the what of work and the why we're doing it. And I think yeah. different cultures have nailed this. And I think interesting, the point about the Anglo-Saxon culture is right, isn't it? Because actually in the, in the southern Mediterranean states, we sort, of, we sort of look at them and slightly envy their different way of life that seems to be slightly more sane. Yeah, yeah. I mean... And there are challenges. Let's face it; it's not romanticised. I mean, oh, no. one of the one of the I read recently that the the Spanish get less sleep than any other country in Europe, um, because what's partly happened is the the siesta's been eroded, and they're so used to going out to eat at sort of eleven, twelve o'clock at night, and yeah. especially in the summer, of course. So so that it hasn't been compensated. So there's. Um, there are challenges, but 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 you're right. I think some of the some of the stuff around family life and around um, community seems to be more embedded here, okay. at least at the moment. So before we dive into the book, who who did you write it for? Who who did you have in mind when you were um, s- sitting and sweating away of your computer? Yeah, no, it, it's interesting. That was a great question asked for, asked by the publisher at an early stage. Who are you writing this for? And they asked me. They suggested I get it really clear in my head. And so because the people I, the majority of the clients I work with would be, for the sake of argument, from about late 20s through to 55-ish, um, working in, in big companies, it, so it was them that I was, I was writing for, people with, that were serious about the career, but also serious about what happened outside of life and increasingly um, family life. One of, the, one of the surprises, I think it has been a bit of a surprise, is that it seems to have crossed, crossed over. And some of the emails I've got have been from people who I thought, well, I didn't really write for you. Um, yeah. but, um, but it seems to have worked. And actually, funnily enough, in, in one country that a lot of countries have positioned the book as a business book, if you like. Yes. Um, in Holland, they published it as a um, everybody book. I'm not sure what the right category for that is in publishing language, but they publish it for everyone. And it went bonkers there. Um, so it seems to have crossover value. But um, but yes, but the person I was aiming for was a corporate warrior. Very good. And he was telling me it had some accolades in terms of business books. It's got some, it had, a, it's had some sort of nice reviews and feedbacks. And it's become one of the top three leadership books of 2016. Yeah. That's, that's so, impressive stuff. So yeah, Top three leadership books in 2016. It's it's been a bestseller in I don't even know how many countries, but quite a few countries. Um, so no, it's been nice. And I, I mean, I wrote the book in a garden shed at the bottom of my brother-in-law's garden, and it's all been a bit of a surprise, really. So it's been a very 
very nice surprise. Yeah, very good. I'm, I'm sure later we'll talk about the um, next book, but let's let's have a look at this one first. So, if I were thinking of uh, buying it or um, acquiring it or stealing it or however we get all the books these days, um, downloading it, um, what am I going to expect? Is this one of these heavy, weighty, academic, theoretical tomes, or are you going to produce something useful and help, helpful? Where, where, where's, your, where's your starting point on the style? Actually, one of the things I wanted to do is is write a book that was somewhere between. So I think there's there are lots of books that are great psychological books. Now, and I wouldn't even class them as necessarily weighty academic tomes, but they're, they're kind of like Daniel Kahneman or, or, um, books, Thinking Fast and Slow, they're huge bestsellers, and they're driven out of a area of research interest. Yeah. And, you know, they, they're written pretty well for the fact that it's quite heavy psychology, but but there's still about an area of research interest. And then there's all these other books at the other end of the spectrum that are around real world problems that people are facing. Um, on one side, you've got the books that are very evidence-based. On the other side, easy to read, but with not necessarily great evidence. And I kind of wanted to write a book that was somewhere in between, that was grappling with real world problems in an interesting and easy and accessible way, but actually applying good psychology to that. So I tend to use psychological studies almost as stories to help illustrate aspects of people's lives um, and, and illustrate things that we can do to to change. So because the book is about trying to help people to make behavioral changes in their response to busyness, I try and use evidence to convince them that actually this stuff can work. So, so what's the basis of some of your evidence? Where's that research um, credibility come from? Well, um, from all over the place. It could come from uh, social psychology, um, behavioural psychology. It could come from... Uh, I was quite kind of free in terms of where, where I looked for the, um, for the research. But, uh, but again, the, the starting point was always, so what's the problem? What's the thing that people need to change? Um, and then how can I illustrate that if you like or um describe what they could do using research perfect so okay let's let's dive into it then so um tell me a bit about um where your, your starting point okay well my starting point is is just to explain that business isn't a good thing and, and actually to to shine a light on the some of the unhelpful habits that we have but then i go into um a number of areas and so one of the things that I, I argue is we've got busier and, and busier and busier. And a story I, I sometimes tell is, is around um, a few years ago, 21st of October 2015, was Back to the Future Day. Um, it was the day Marty McFly came forward to the future. And if you think about that film, if you ever saw that film, there was a world of flying cars and hoverboards and it was really different to the mid eighties. Yeah. I think I think if he actually had come forward to today, he'd be a bit disappointed because our world doesn't look very similar, apart from in one domain, and that's the psychological world. The, the IBM recently estimated that the while the knowledge of the world, the complete knowledge of the world, used to double every hundred years, it'll soon be doubling every eleven hours, and uh, and if you combine that with the amount of extra demands, the communication overload that we get from email, etc. We all get busy. Um, but the starting point is to say, but are we... Busy is a natural response to this kind of crazy information overload. But is it 
the right response? Is it is it a smart response? And is it the only response? So, I mean, there's some great research where psychologists put people in a room um, and said, look, you've got nothing to do for, 50, for 15 minutes. Uh, well, there is one thing you can do. You can give yourself an electric shock. Right. And because we got so used to this world of hyper-stimulation and activity, most people chose to electrocute themselves, even though it was painful, rather than be left alone with their brains. And so there's, there's quite a lot, you know, we've got to ask ourselves, you know, how many of us reach for our first shot of email before our first shot of caffeine in the morning? So there's quite a lot of this behavior, this busyness that isn't just driven by how much there is to do, but is also driven by... It's slightly addictive. It's slightly um, interesting. It, it allows us to avoid spending time with our own brain. Um, and so I, I start off by putting a question mark in in the in, in the thought that we're busy because there's too much to do. Because I think I I assume that it's only going to get worse. The amount of information demanding communication is only going to increase. So at a certain point, we have to rethink our response to that. And come up with a different response, and then the and then the, the bulk of the book then goes through what that means, um, which presumably um, is going to be your next question. Well, uh, yeah, I was, but just before I do, you're sort of teeing me up under on balls now. <laughs> so, so it's interesting. You, you're sort of um, describing busyness as a, and I, I like your linkage to addiction there because it is it is almost you're saying. Um, a dopamine, dopamine reward system because actually yes. people are somehow getting something from this busyness. It isn't, yes. it isn't necessarily a cultural showing off. It's actually some sort of particularly personal need, perhaps, you're saying. Well, and, some, no, and maybe some I, of it's I, I, I dodging it's, the real world, but also something, it's something, it has some sort of gratification for the individual. I, well, I, think that, I think the reason it's so compelling is it's lots of things. So... It is the dopamine thing, um, and it, you know we know, for example, office work, workers switch attention every three minutes. I read one study that found that seventy percent of all emails sent to knowledge workers get looked at within um, six seconds of them being sent. So there's this kind of constant swiveling backwards and forwards that is compelling chemically, if you like. Yeah, I think there's there is a um, a branding element to it. I mean, we know that people compete to be busier. So there's, there's, you know, yes. there's some nice research that found, finds that. So there's, there's a kind of branding thing or a status thing. Um, but there's also an avoidance piece. So we touched briefly on, um, so there's, there's actually quite a few psychologists that, that do studies where they look at uh, where, where articles that say people are happier when they're busier because they, they give people these simple um, scenarios um, and when they're not active, they ask themselves to rate themselves. When they are active, they ask themselves to rate And they say, well, I'm happier when I'm, I'm doing stuff. But I think that misses the point. I think that um, those kind of studies look at the immediate gratification of activity versus the consequences of never being alone with our brain, which is critical for our um, because when the default network fires up when we're off task that's when we make sense of the world that's when we make meaning that's when we we div we have a chance to reflect on our lives in line with our values that's when we have a chance to evolve our personality and then I think there's, there's another level which is that in almost every sense busyness is easier than the alternative 
Yes. No. No. So it's a form of procrastination. Yeah, and I think you've hit. I think you've hit on the thing here. I was. I was very struck by um, essentialism, the, the work by Greg McKeon. Yes. Who, who talk, and and Stephen Pressfield, who talk a lot about deep work, and they talk yes. about this need to remove the busyness in order to be able to actually focus on, to focus on deeper thinking. Um, better quality thinking and what they're saying is uh, is that actually this desire to have busyness is in is polluting our capability to think with real clarity and think with real depth or to be able to concentrate and focus over the longer period of time yeah i, I think that and look the world economic forum in davos asked the question what are going to be the core capabilities for for humans in the future and the I paraphrase what they say, but fundamentally they say it's three big things. It's complex problem solving or thinking, creativity and empathy. In other words, it's doing really human things better. Um, And I would argue that busyness undermines all three. In a funny way, our technology, while it's a wonderful enabler, it's made us a little bit more machine-like. Yes. And, you know, we're a bit more efficient. We can produce a little bit more. Um, But... But, you know, actually, we don't do the things that we can do really well and actually undermine our value in a world of artificial intelligence. And one, one data point, which I just think is interesting, in the time of Marty McFly, if I go back to that example, the, in the mid-80s, since then, the amount of information we're all consuming has increased by five times. Now, the brain's never experienced that before, it, that kind of scale of increase of information. But... But that, that pales in insignificance compared to another stat, which is in the same time period, we're producing, each of us, 200 times more content yes. in text messages, emails. If you hold those two together, most of our productivity, most of our activity is just white noise. No one can yeah. consume it. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of, we just feel like we're playing the wrong game. And, you know, that what we need for deep thinking, for genuine connection, even the empathy piece, you know, we spend our lives fubbing each other. You know, do you know what fubbing is? Uh, when, when we kind of, we're slightly rude to each other with our phones. Oh, yes. So we're in a, in a conversation and we get out our phones or we're in a meeting, we get out our laptops. Um, and, and I work with so many companies who talk about they want to get more diversity and they want to get more innovation. And yet they allow practices where we're never fully present with each other. We're all sort of half there when we've got laptops open. Um, and we know that any value from difference in a room, any value from diversity, just doesn't get accessed if people are only half present with each other. Yeah. So we, you know, from a whole pile of perspectives, we're, um, we're just allowing ourselves to become too machine-like. And it's, 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 you've hit on a fascinating thing in the language there, because you know, I'm very taken with this idea that if you look at resilience itself, and you're looking at pressure, you look at stress, these are all engineering words. These are all words about um, mechanics. And actually, yes. human beings aren't mechanical systems. You know, no. we're, we're, we're biochemical processing machines. And actually, we need a new language to be able to really understand and see the world differently around this subject yeah. for me. So I love the you're way abs- you're using you're- that analogy. It's great. And you're absolutely right. On the, on the, directly on the resilience point, the, um, one of the biggest things that I have to work with when doing this kind of work with people it, it, is around learned helplessness. Yeah. So people, there's a whole pile of language that people use um, and a, a set of beliefs that I can't do anything, that I have to do this, I must do this. Uh, uh, and they, they say, you know, they have this belief that I'm busy because there is too much to do and there's nothing I can do about that. And it's, um, but what that 
leads to is a set of coping behaviors as opposed to trying to do something about it. And yet, uh, as you know, Russell, that one of the biggest determinants of uh, increase in pressure um, leading to increases in stress is a sense of no control. Exactly. And so that insertion of choice of actually saying, you know what, yes, there is too much to do, and therefore, what choices do I choose to make in the face of that? How do I still focus on the stuff that I know is going to make a difference to my clients or I know is going to make a difference to my children, um, despite having too much? And then allowing the chaos to... I once, I once had a... Uh, I met... Uh, this brilliant Olympian. She's um, she's called Irene Roost. Um, for any Dutch listeners, I apologise for the pronunciation. She's won four gold medals in speed skating, right. and she she very kindly said, "Look, I need to buy your book, Tony." And, and I thought she was just being polite, so I said, oh, "Okay." And she said, "No, but really, parts of my life are chaotic." And you know when you think when you remember af- when you think afterwards, God, what I should have said was because at the time I think I said, "Oh, okay." Um, but what I wished I'd said afterwards was, but that's success. Um, if she tried to get everything perfect in her life, yes. she would not have won four gold medals. Exactly. I think part of the, the trick is having the courage to say, um, I'm going to be a bit sloppy in certain areas in order to be really good here. I mean, in some respects, perfection and trying to do everything is the enemy of greatness. I, you know, I, I couldn't agree more. On, I mean, I couldn't agree more. Some of the wellness coaching we do is really all about how you defeat this idea of perfection. And, and yes. people work to a standard that's far too high given the actual standard that's required. So they just have no time because they're all working to an imagined standard. I mean, it's a failure of leadership that someone's not said what the standard is. But, you know, if we, if we, if we can't get this right as a starting point, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a tricky thing. And uh, yes. I'm glad you're referencing Marty Seligman in, in all this because obviously he's the founder, father of resilience. So he's uh, he's always good and a to wonderful discuss. man, uh, very much so, very much so. So um, ages ago, you said you're probably going to ask me a question, which was, so what do I do about it? And I think it's probably time I said, so Tony, what do I do about it all? Yeah, well, one of the things that I'd say is we need to repivot. So I think our natural response is to think the answer is managing my time better. And I don't think it is. Um, I am so I actually, pleased. I am so pleased you've said that. Because yeah, I think, I, 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 I think we've, we've done time management to death, haven't we? It's time for uh, something different. You know, and, and look, there's a whole pile of curious stuff with time. You know, when, when we focus a lot on time, um, the first thing is you put a clock in front of somebody and they actually do more stuff. But it is more stuff. And actually, so increased time awareness and we actually become busier, which yeah. probably isn't the solution to busyness. Exactly. Um, Second thing is, you know, as, as you mentioned, Marty Seligman, as he finds, lawyers are the least happy profession of all professions because they, they focus on time. And somehow when we focus more on managing our time, we split our time into smaller slices. And so we get this kind of psychic entropy thing going, which is like internal feeling of your brain, like you're shaking a snow globe. It's all kind of chaotic and disorganized. But also I think there's some curious stuff when we increase our awareness of time rather than real shortage of time. Um, through managing time we actually become less creative we solve problems less well um, and our performance drops now what i what i think it's time for and and i think that the real shortage now is attention right and so what i talk about a lot is managing our attention better and i think so a metaphor i use for that is of a surfer 
um, surfing these kind of crazy storms of, of demand and expectation. And if you think about what a surfer does, they do three things. First of all, they choose the waves. So they don't try and catch all the waves. They choose their waves really carefully. Um, and, and I refer to um, some of the work of Chip and Dan Heath around making choices. So, um, so the, the natural response that, or the natural way I respond to um, a buffet table is I choose everything because I ask myself whether or not I want chicken korma, whether, whether or not I want potato salad. And I like my food, so the answer is always yes. <laughs> and, and, and the same happens in life, isn't it? You know, should I, should I do that project? Should I sign my child up for that extra after school class? These are all worthwhile things. And when we ask whether or not, which is a scarcity-based question, a question designed for a world where there's not enough to do, um, the answer is always yes. And we end up with a plate that we send back to the kitchen if a chef served it to us, or a life that's chaotic and busy. The answer that we should be asking is which. Which of these is the best use of my attention? So I work a lot with people to help them do that. And simple ways of doing that are things like actually starting to focus more on choose on starting your day by focusing on the big stuff rather than the small. Anyone that spends their life and the primary focus of activity is a to-do list is in trouble because the stuff that goes on a to-do list is all the stuff that I might forget and therefore by definition is small. So I think we should start with the two or three big priorities and what, what we should focus on. So first of all, having strategies for persistently pointing our attention in the way that we mean it to. And I love the research by Brian Wansink where he found that prisoners get fat in prison because they don't wear belts. Yes, so, that's right. So actually uh, having deliberately, because it's really easy to monitor progress on email, going from 270 unopened emails to 50, that's quite satisfying, easy to monitor. But it's much less easy to monitor big stuff, like those bigger projects, those bigger things that really make a difference to you. But, but finding a way of doing that on a daily basis is really important to fight the reactive pull of, or the magnetic pull of reactivity. Yeah. So the second thing, first thing they do is choose the waves, get good at that. Um, second thing the surfers do is they get really good at immersing themselves in what they're doing, whether it's a great conversation and being completely present for a great conversation, or whether it's, um, or whether it's work. I mean, and we have a whole pile of weird habits in work. I've worked with one company, um, a publishing house, and all the editors, bear in mind their job title is editing, didn't start editing until after five o'clock. Mm. And you know as well as I, by the time you get to five o'clock, your brain is mush, um, and you try to do the heaviest intellectual lifting when your brain is tired. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah. So it, it's actually thinking more like an athlete and saying, how do I get the best performance out of my brain how do i create quiet spaces in my day to allow me to really think about the big stuff that matters and then maybe do my crunch through my email at, at, you know at a time when i'm a bit less mentally alert you, you know that, and that's interesting isn't it i and i'll talk about this you know often that your brain's most optimized in terms of its fighting fitness first thing in the morning and that's the time when people are checking emails and they're sort of looking at the to-do lists and they're looking backwards and looking forwards and they're being and they're being the least strategic. And look, and part of that is, part of that is, we know that when people are given the choice between something um, small and really dull, or a task that's big but you know difficult but interesting, yeah. 
they will choose the small and dull. So we, we, we go to work with good intentions and we just think, oh, I'll just check email. And then you just get hooked. And then you, you're away. And all of a sudden, you get to 11 o'clock. And you're too tired to really get into some of the some of the bigger stuff. So some of this stuff is just really simple habits that allow you to understand your brain and make better use of it. And then the final thing a surfer does is they stay on their wave. They ride it out longer. They, they create, they allow themselves to work on things for bigger chunks of time rather than this kind of bouncing backwards. So, I mean... Again, as you know, the, the stats show that when you go backwards and forwards between tasks, we get 40% less done. Um, you know, and it, but more than that, it's really exhausting. And it takes, you know, an amount of time to get into a flow state or get into a really focused, concentrated state. So even just clustering emails together is a really important thing. And I think that, you know, and... But, but again, at the same time, since we know that the, it's harder to resist the temptation of email and, and busy activity than, than it is to resist sex and chocolates, one study with Germans found, um, that it, actually the best thing to do isn't try and resist them, it's just, get, just switch them off. Get rid of notifiers, get away from email to allow yourself to work temptation-free and to actually be, be focused on that. And, 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 I, and, I th- and I think one of the problems here is the dopamine problem here, because actually I think we have become addicted to that. Yes. Looking at emails, and it's sort of it's validation, it's 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 real work. Um, yes. And I've, I've one of my colleagues, uh, you know, does one of the things that Tim Ferriss recommends, which is he only looks at his phone in terms of emails once a day. And um, and he says, you know, the, because people will say, oh no, I can't do that in case someone important rings. But he said that he's a, he's, you know, he's a very successful guy. And he says, well, most people realise you're busy. Yeah, I, I look at them. I look at email twice a day. Yeah. Um, and um, and and that's the point. You know, that we have these catastrophic fears um, of what could happen if we miss an email. Um, but the, the problem is, the fi- the fear of what could happen if I don't be busy what could happen if i don't answer, if i'm not on top of those they're really obvious to us but actually the subtle and the much bigger risk that we face is having a really dull life yeah. is actually is you know is allowing our um, relationships to be eaten you know by the gentle poison of distraction if you like and, and all of a sudden find ourselves in, in, a, in relationships that just don't feed us anymore um and it's kind of but 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 the really big risks aren't very obvious. Um, whereas the small risks of missing that meeting, missing that email before the meeting, we, we allow to rule our lives. So I mean, yeah, I think the the chemical side of it isn't just about dopamine. It's also about the way fear works. It's also about the way um, the way anxiety works. Yes. So we're going to choose our wave. We're going to immerse ourselves. And what was the third thing? Um, to stay on the wave longer. That's right. So actually, to to cluster and to and to leave bigger bigger gaps of of attention for the for the stuff that matters. Interesting. And this is important because it's interesting that you've written the book for people in large multinationals and such like. Because actually, one of the key things in career terms is learning to manage the politics. And um, it is funny how often people will say to me, oh, um, you know, I want to get ahead or I want to do this. And I'll say, how well are you managing the politics? And say, I'm too busy to manage the politics. I just, yeah. need, to, I just need to do a good job and hope someone notices. And that, and that especially in larger organizations, this becomes um, a skillful enterprise that people have to be aware of. 
Yeah, and look, when it comes to that, um, I mean, we we know. I mean, look, even so, Bud. There's a famous example of Budweiser. Fifty um, percent of U.S. drinkers prefer or, or drink Budweiser. U.S. beer drinkers, and they are fiercely loyal. Mm. And yet, when you do blind taste tests, they can't tell the difference between Budweiser, Miller's, or Coors. Um, because brand matters, and even if something is as important as um, taste, things like brand and perception and relationships really matter and influence the decisions that people make about us. And so this thought about um, I'm just going to focus on good, doing a good job is, is quite a, a dumb thought because actually um, a lot of those relationships really matter. And, and, and actually the, the shame of it is the brand that most of us are building up is the brand of busyness yes. as opposed to building up a brand about stuff that's actually genuinely interesting about ourselves that has some cut through in, in an attention economy actually standing for something as opposed to rampant activity feels like it's quite a valuable thing yeah that's actually that's actually a very significant point yeah no I, I actually put a I put a piece in the book about branding because what I wanted to do is if busy is, I mean, for many respects, busy is, is a defensive career strategy. It's trying to avoid bad stuff happening to you. Yeah, yeah. Um, and what I wanted to do is is say, well, if you're going to be not busy, because the brain doesn't work on negatives, does it? So it's kind of, the, the brain works on positives. So rather than starting with saying, I'm just going to be less busy, uh, which feels like a sort of career subtraction, what I start with is, what's the impact that you want to make? You know, and, and when it comes to the reputational stuff, don't just stop being busy. Stand for something else that has meaning that you care about more. Build a brand around something that describes you at your best rather than just you doing grey, mindless activity. And I, and, and I, really, I really like what you're talking about here. And I'm someone who gets easily diffused because I have about 30 million ideas every four and a quarter seconds. And actually that choosing your wave is the thing, isn't it? Because actually... If you have too many ideas, the vast majority are going to be terrible. If you are diffused, it's because actually you're not you're, you're becoming busy in the pers- in the pursuit of creativity. Oddly enough, isn't that? You've, yeah, you've, you've got and, to and make look, choices, haven't you? Well, yeah, and, and the thing is, so there's a lovely story about Warren Buffett. You may have heard of it about a conversation he had with his pilot, and he asked the pilot, "What are your goals in life?" And the guy um, wrote twenty down. Uh, and Buffett then said to him, so choose your top five, and he chose his top five. Uh, and then he, he said, look really carefully at your next 15 and do everything you can to avoid doing those mm. because they're the things that will distract you from really actually having the life that you want to have. Um, and, and and part of part of success in life and satisfaction is is actually being able to choose and consciously choose. So, you know, we get stuck in this kind of fear of missing out thing yeah. that so many people talk about. I, and look, we all suffer from I, My brother-in-law posted on Facebook or whatever that he started kite surfing. And my first response was almost physical pain. I thought, someone like me should kite surf. Surely I must be able to make time for that. Mm-hmm. Um, until you sit back and think, Choosing the kite surf means I'm unchoosing something else. That's it. Um, and there are always, and, and which takes us back to busyness again, because when we choose busyness, we are unchoosing other things. And it's and part of the trick is, and where I told the story about the buffet, is 
part of the trick is making the stuff that we're unchoosing much more visible, much more relevant to us. Whereas if all we do is focus on the, the busy activity, we choose that, but we, we sort of we forget about the stuff that we're unchoosing, which might be really important relationships. It might be that piece of that project that's going to make a real difference to the business. Um, so the more we can make those other things really, really relevant, so actually it becomes the, the real choice. Am I going to do all this kind of busyness or am I actually going to do that? Which which is the best use of my attention right now? And that's and what, the real and choice. Of, and that's right. And one of the challenges in business is, of course, a boss will turn around and say, well, I want you to do both. And actually the point is that you can't. Because, no. because actually we forget opportunity costs, which is exactly what you're saying here, which is there's the cost of doing what you're doing, but actually the, the opportunity cost of not doing what you, what you should be doing when you're doing the things you shouldn't be doing them. And the essence of all strategy, somewhere. The, the essence of all strategy is, is making trade-offs. Yeah, and, and I do so many strategy events where you have this morning where everyone gets terribly excited about all the stuff they can do, yeah. and then at a certain point you say, "So therefore, out of these ten great ideas, what are you going to do?" Yeah. But as Tim Tim Cook once said, "Apple's successful because we say no to great ideas every day in order to put enormous energy behind the few that we choose. That's it. That's the secret. That is the secret. And that's the secret of purpose as well and living life on purpose. And it's interesting, I was reading it and I do a lot of work in simplification around change management and people yeah. will, will work ever so hard to make something 10 times more complicated and will spend no time making work easier or less, less complicated. It's almost yes. as if it's almost as if it's it can't be worth doing if it's easier to do. And one of the simplest ways to make stuff easier to do is do less of it or do less of the other things that are getting in the way of it. Exactly, exactly. Uh, I think your book is is really um, in, what's the word? It's, it's of its moment. I think, I think it's, it speaks to, I think it speaks to many people, you know, who of all different ages who are in different places. It sounds like there's a ton of really practical stuff in there Tony if, if there's is, is there one sort of parting thought you need to leave us with and to, before we talk about how you get, get hold of this doc, uh, this book one simple piece of advice one simple thing that you want people to really go away thinking about yeah well, well look I think if you look at the I talked earlier about busy is the natural response Busy is the standard response to the environment that we're in now, particularly in offices. Um, the natural response for the brain is to be reactive and constantly swivel towards new and interesting things, is to do shallow processing and do shallow thinking, um, and to be distracted. Um, and But it's not the only choice. And I think what we need to do is just recognize that we're human, that our brains are incredible machines, incredible um, pieces of kit, but at the same time, they are vulnerable to some of the um, environment that, that we're surrounded by. So if we want to really use the brain to its best, we do have to be human and recognize our human frailties and put simple practices in place that allow us to move from reactivity to being more intentional about where we put our most valuable attention. We have to be um, intentional about creating environments that allow us to do our best thinking and our best creativity. And we have to be intentional about how we reduce the distractions that we're exposed to, to allow us to stay for longer on what we're doing. I love it. I love it. I mean, you're taking me back to one of my favorite themes, which is all about choice and control. And, and that's what you're saying. You can choose to be busy or you can choose to be effective or you can choose to you know, really have the life you want to live. And, that, and, for, and, and for goodness sake, 
get over feeling like some kind of hero victim of busyness. Next time, at the very least, next time you're find yourself describing yourself as busy, catch yourself in the act about it, uh, act of it, and do something different. Love it. Tony, how do I get my mitts on one of these books? Well, it, it's, I mean, my website's tonycrab.com, um, T-O-N-Y-C-R-A-B-B-E.com. Um, that'll have links to various international versions. Amazon's got it. Um, it's available on Kindle and in most bookshops. So, um, and actually, and yeah, it's, you'll, it's in 12 languages. And you'll be able to go to it from our own website because we'll, uh, we'll link to it as well. So, Fantastic. Plenty of opportunity for everybody to have a look. And I shall be off to read it myself. It sounds brilliant, Tony. I really appreciate your time today. It's been really fantastic. I've thoroughly enjoyed our time together. And, and I know you, you need to be off in a couple of minutes. So I just want to say thanks so much. And um, it's been an absolute pleasure today. I think you've delivered some really fascinating com- you know, content. And I'm, I'm off to put some of it into effect myself. Well, it's a real pleasure, Russell. Nice you, to meet you. You and you. You take care and I'll speak soon. Thanks for listening today. I hope we really got some value from that. I certainly enjoyed it myself. Remember, there's only other podcasts and with tools and techniques, different speakers and different resources available in the series of Resilience Unraveled, so please feel free to subscribe. Why not also drop across to Facebook and join our group, Resilience Unraveled, and join in the conversation. Also, if you wanted to whip over to iTunes and drop us a, a preview or a review, that would be fantastic. Thanks ever so much. You can get hold of us at qedod.com or at personalresilience.com where you can get hold of free ebooks, resources, some online courses, and even some coaching. But whatever happens, I look forward for you joining us on the next edition of Resilience Unraveled.